Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Well, like Nathan said, my name is John Seattle. I'm the student pastor here at Southridge Community Church, and I am honored and privileged to get a chance to kind of continue our study in cliche Christianity. And today, we're going to be talking about the phrase, God just wants me to be happy. God just wants me to be happy. Have you ever heard or even used this phrase before? God just wants me to be happy. Yeah, okay, great. A good number of people. God just wants me to be happy. What does that even mean? What is happiness? Happiness is feeling or showing pleasure or contentment. Feeling or showing pleasure or contentment. I would take that a step further. I don't feel that it's just that. It applies to majority of when this is applied is applied to life circumstances. Feeling or showing pleasure or contentment about life circumstances, right? How are you feeling about the weather, your job, your wealth, your status, your coffee, I don't even know, whatever life circumstances that you're experiencing that day. Now, as we go through this series of cliche Christianity, you'll see each one of these phrases has like a little nugget of truth. And that's where this all starts, right? There's a nugget of truth in the midst of this statement. And so I would say that the nugget of truth that we have to identify in this phrase, God wants me to be happy, is that God wants you to experience joy. See, God wants you to experience joy, and we tend to confuse these things, joy and happiness, right? In our culture today, we use them interchangeably. Oh, they're such a joyful person. They're such a happy person. But they mean two very, very separate things. Happiness, applying to life circumstances. Joy is true fulfillment in who Christ has created us to be. True fulfillment that we experience in who Christ has created us to be. We can have joy and happiness can be a byproduct of that. But if you are feeling happy, it does not mean that you are experiencing joy. Does that make sense? It's really important that we get that. It does not necessarily mean that you are experiencing joy. God wants me to be happy. If you used or have heard this phrase, nine times out of ten, it fits within the context of justifying something, right? It's justifying something. God wants me to be happy, so you know what? I don't feel like preaching. I think I'm going to take a nap, right? Wouldn't that be quite the message if I just laid down on stage and just took a nap? Or you know what? God wants me to be happy, and my legs are tired, so rather than standing, I think I will take a seat for a majority of the message. Oh, that does actually feel better. And you know what? This is not the most comfortable. So why would I sit there when we can sit here, right? God wants me to be happy. Oh, guys, we love these chairs. These chairs are great. They are very nice chairs. How many of you grew up sitting in pews? Oh, okay. You know how good these chairs are. Whoever designed a pew, man, some major design flaws, all right? Comfort, 
back posture, about like 10 minutes into the message, you're like, I'm ready to leave, right? You might feel that way right now. Who knows? Uh, anyway, I'm not going to jump up. That's, that's how we end up on America's Funniest Home Videos. So I'll just walk around. Anyway, God wants me to be happy. Listen, at the end of the day, even the examples I just used, they're just distractions, right? Those, would be dist- those wouldn't even be sins. If I sat there and gave the message, it wouldn't be anything other than just a distraction. But it's the idea that we use it to justify what we want to do, and we put God's name on it because nobody can argue with God. So we're going to be jumping into this today. And I think the best place for us to start is preparing our hearts through a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we love you. We're grateful for you. And Lord, we are lifting up to you this message, these words. Would you speak, be true, penetrate the hearts, minds, and souls? God, I know in my own heart the desire to share your truth. So please remove me. Remove me out of this equation and let it just be your Holy Spirit speaking through me as a tool into the hearts and minds and lives of these people. And Father, could I ask, could I beg that whether it is this message or this conversation or a hundred other ones, I do not care. But Lord, would we as Southridge Community Church and the greater church of New Jersey make a difference in our communities, Father, that we would be able to be empowered to share what we learn with others, family members, friends, people we run into at stores or at work. Father, would we share your truth boldly and unashamed? Please make this true in our lives. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Today, we're going to be talking about a very specific Bible character in the Old Testament, okay? I'm going to be talking about Moses, my man Moses, all right? But before we talk about Moses, it is really important that we take some time to cover some backstory, okay? Because in order for us to truly understand or relate to Moses, we don't just read, we do not read passages out of context, okay? That's how you twist passages to make them say what you want them to say right? Instead, we read it in the greater, grander, larger story of what scripture is, okay? So we have the story of Moses, but we rewind the tape a little bit, and we come to this guy named Jacob. Jacob, also known as Israel. Israel has a son named Joseph. Many of us have learned about Joseph over the years, right? Joseph, Joseph, the man who received the special coat and the special treatment and his father's love, right? Well, Joseph is sold into slavery by his jealous brothers. And while in Egypt, Joseph is blessed numerous times. He continues to meet challenges and God's like, don't worry, I got this. I bless you, I bless you, I bless you. All the way to the point that Joseph is second in command in Egypt, right? Joseph is second in command in Egypt. And he ends up um, avoiding quite a huge issue for the Egyptian people by interpreting one of Pharaoh's both of Pharaoh's dreams. And he foretells of a famine that is going to be coming. And through that famine, God brings Israel and the other brothers back into the storyline. And he brings them back to, to Egypt. And they have this moment with Joseph where reconciliation takes place, right? And the people of Israel, the Israelites, move into Egypt. Now, quick little thing that we tend to gloss over. Like, it's fascinating because you hear throughout scripture a lot of times, there was a famine in the land. There was a famine in the land. If you start to follow the context, a lot of times when there's a famine, people retreat to Egypt, 
And the reason for this was that regardless of a famine, because of lack of rain, the Nile would continue to flow. And so it was always a resource for everyone. There was always provision that took place in Egypt. And so they went to Egypt and they ran into Joseph and Joseph through some incredible, incredible work of the Lord, basically provides for the Israelites. Now let's fast forward a little bit. The Israelites are a growing, growing people in Egypt. They are growing people. And at this point, Joseph has passed on and there's a new Pharaoh, okay? There's a new Pharaoh. And this Pharaoh sees the Israelites as a threat. So what does he do? He suppresses them. He puts taskmasters over the Israelites. He basically looks at them and says, you are not going to take over our land. We're going to subjugate you. And so the Israelites become slaves. And even in the midst of that, God blesses them. And so they continue to multiply in number. And so the Pharaoh says, we should kill all of the baby boys under two years old. And that's where the story of Moses starts to pick up. Because Moses is born right in the middle of that time period. And when he's born, he is actually hidden and saved. And after about three months, we've all probably heard this story at some point or another, he's put in a basket and put onto the Nile. And by God's incredible, incredible provision, he is taken in by Pharaoh's daughter, the princess. And the princess literally says, you know what, this little Hebrew boy, I don't know whether it was out of sympathy or pity or her heart was just overflowing, who knows. But she takes this little Hebrew boy in and goes, hey, I'm going to raise you. We're going to raise you in the house of Pharaoh. Crazy, right? Craziness. And so Moses grows up in the house of Pharaoh. And then he reaches a point in age where he starts to see the oppression that's taking place of the Egyptians on the Israelites. And one day he actually sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite. And out of, I don't know whether it was anger or he just acted out, but he ends up killing the Egyptian. And then he tries to bury it up and and hide it. And so he buries the Egyptian, but it turns out that people still saw, and it's this problem, and he's filled with fear. And so what does he do? He flees. He flees to the land of Midian, right? And there he gets married. He becomes a shepherd. And that is where our story picks up. And there's an important piece that, listen, I just think we don't think about this because we read Scripture sometimes without, like, I'll say myself. Sometimes I read scripture without asking or thinking through. Like scripture is not just a textbook. It's it's a story. And could you imagine Moses, right? So here's this young Hebrew boy who's taken in and provided for. And I'm sure he was very grateful. But this this guy must have had some level of like an identity crisis. No, I'm serious because he's this Hebrew boy who's raised in an Egyptian home. So he doesn't really fit in here, Right? He's cared for, he's loved, but at the end of the day, he's not Egyptian. He's not inheriting any of the kingdom. He's not on the level of an Egyptian. But then he's a Hebrew that doesn't really fit into this category because he's not going through suffering either. And so he's like right here in the middle and he's like, uh, where do I fit? Right? And so this moment comes up where he sees this and he acts and he kills and then Normally, when those things happen, you run to the place where you feel like you belong. And he doesn't have a place where he doesn't run to this group. He doesn't run to this group. He runs away. He runs to Midian, where he ends up settling down. And our story picks up 40 years later. 
And that's where we start reading in Exodus chapter 3. I would encourage you, open up your Bibles, because we're going to do a lot of reading today. A lot of reading. Open them up. If you don't have your Bible, right underneath uh, the chair in front of you or a chair nearby you, there are Bibles. Okay? We're going to be reading out of Exodus chapter 3. And let me tell you, there's probably no greater thing I can do up here on stage other than read the Bible. So we are going to read the Bible. And a, and a lar- rather large chunk, which is not so great. I'm not a great reader, so we're, we're going to see how this goes. Um, Nonetheless, we are going to be picking up in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. So I mentioned this story takes place like 40 years later. Moses, and many of you have heard this story. It's Moses and the burning bush. All right. Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw this, uh, saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why? Why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. We're going to stop here for a second. What has happened so far in the story that normally doesn't happen? A burning bush that's not burning up, right? That's what's going on here. We see this burning bush that's not burning up. And Moses, Moses knows this and goes, oh, okay, wow. Like, I'm going to go over and check that out. And as he goes over, God calls out to him. He's like, Moses, this is God, like holy ground. And Moses immediately hides his face because he's fearful of God. Now, we have a, a larger theological term for this kind of experience. Fun little word I'm going to teach you today. It's called a theophany. Theophany. Theophany actually means, uh, I'm going to read the exact definition so I don't mess it up, a visible manifestation for mankind of God. So God is visibly showing himself to Moses, not his actual being, but through the, the fire of the burning bush, right? That's why it's not burning up, right? That, like normally you burn a bush, it burns up, it, it's gone. So what we see here is a theophany. And so we, we already know, we've set the table, God is interacting with Moses, and Moses is interacting with God. And we pick up in verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good, spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this, is, this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So God kind of says, hey, listen, I'm going to take you and you're going to help lead my people of Israel. And I feel like Moses' question here is reasonable, right? 
Moses, who, if he is actually struggling with figuring out where he fits into this equation, is like, God, like, like why me? Right? This is a humble inquiry of God. Like, why me, God? Like, why would you send me? And God's like, don't worry. I'm going with you. All right? You've got me on your side. I'm going to be there throughout the process. So we continue to pick up reading in verse 13. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the hand of the Canaanites, Hittite, into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorable, favorably disposed towards this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in the house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters and so will plunder the Egyptians. All right. So Moses, once again, goes, God, listen, let's say I go to them. All right, I'm going to, the, I'm going to them, and I say, hey, God sent me. And they go, who, who is this God? What's his name? And I love God's response, okay? We tend to, like, totally gloss over this. We could do, like, a whole message series on God's response here. God goes, I am who I am. Tell them that I am has sent me. Guys, listen, I don't know if you feel this way, and I'm definitely at fault for this. Like nowadays, when we name somebody, like a child, right? You, you had a kid, you have a baby, you name your child. You name them because no, you've never heard that name before, or you think it sounds cool, right? Like, oh, what's their nickname going to be? Well, we can't call them that because they'll get made fun of when they're a little kid, right? Like, does anyone know what I'm talking about? Like, that's why we name kids. Oh my gosh, like, drives, it's crazy. I talk to my wife about this all the time. Like, you know, Oh, well, Sally just named their kid that, so, you know, that, that name's off the table. And it's like, why? Like, what? That doesn't make any sense. To me. Anyway, that's another story for another time. But the point being, when it comes to names, we name because we think it's cool. Back in this time, names had great levels of significance. Your name was not only who you were going to be, but it was also who you were going to aspire to be, right? The names had such great levels of significance. So what God is actually saying here is, hey, listen, I'm not one thing. I am who I am. I am all things. If God had said, tell them that the great provider or the great rescuer or the great I am has sent them, it would have actually given them a narrowed viewpoint of who God is. Like, how crazy is that? Like, God literally knows. He's like, listen, I got to tell them that this is going to be my name because then everyone 
will know that I am not limited by my name. I am who I am. I am the great I am. There's significance in guys. There's significance in that. We cannot just read over scripture and not pick up on these things. They're so important. So we read this, and there's a lot more I could get into there that we do not have time for today. But nonetheless, basically that takes place. God gives him the name, and then he basically tells Moses, listen, you're going to go to the elders. The elders, they're going to be on your team. Don't worry about it. But then you're going to go to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's not going to have it, and I'm going to basically have to, you know, do some serious work here and change his heart. Like, that's basically what God says in a lot better way than I did, summarizing it. But anyway, you get the point. And that leads us to this next portion of scripture. Chapter four, Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out his hand and took, took a hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that you may, um, so they may believe that the Lord, the God of, of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous, and it became as white as snow. Now put it into your, now put it into your cloak, he said. So when Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and then he took it out. It was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it, pour it on the ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. We're going to stop here. Moses Basically, God has already told him, and, I, and this is where I start to feel like the tone changes a little bit, right? We have these two inquiries from Moses, like, hey, God, um, you know, like, who am I to go? And then he's like, God, who should I tell them is sending me? And then it starts to be like, well, what if they don't believe me? And it's like, wait a second, Moses, a couple of verses before that, God clearly told you the elders are going to believe you and Pharaoh's not. So we've already kind of covered this. This transitions from us feeling like it's inquiries to objections, right? Moses is now kind of like, but God, like, really? Like me? Like, you know, he's starting to become objecting. And so God gives him these signs and miracles to reassure him, which leads us to our last portion of scripture we're going to read for today. And that's verse 10 to the end of uh, 18, or to the beginning of 18. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will speak. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother, Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your, were your mouth 
and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. All right. <clears throat> so Moses kind of comes to God and he's like, God, listen, I'm not the best talker, all right? Don't send me, God, send somebody else. And I find this fascinating too, because if we understand Moses was raised in an Egyptian household, he probably received a better education than most, right? Like just putting the puzzle pieces together. So he may not be the best at talking, but he's probably pretty adequate. Like I can't imagine he like literally can't speak. He's, he grew up in a household that would have trained him in those things. And he would have had to speak Egyptian and talk, in, like, talk that kind of language all the time. That's where he lived. So anyway, separate point. My point being, though, it once again feels like Moses is objecting. Objecting. God, like, no, what about somebody else? Send somebody else, right? Have you guys ever, maybe you've heard or maybe sadly you've experienced this. Have you ever went on a first date with somebody and you thought it went great? You were like, this, this was special. This was wonderful. And then the next day, you call them, and you're like, hey, I had a great time. Like, are you available this weekend to get together? We'll maybe go out for coffee or something like that. And they're like, oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm busy. I can't do this weekend. You're like, oh, that's fine. No big deal. What about, what about next week? Any point next week you're available? And they're like, oh, you know what? I'm busy all of next week. That, that really stinks. Okay. All right. Uh, what about a month? Do you have, like, any time this next month? And then slowly you're like talking about like a year, right? Like, can we put something on the calendar the next year? I am sorry. I think all the dates you have, I'm planning on being sick. Like, this is just not going to work. At a point, you begin to realize like, this person clearly does not want to spend any more time with me. And I feel like that's the tension that we feel here. At this point, God has got to be feeling like, Moses, I get it. You don't want to go. You don't want to do this. I understand. Read it loud and clear. So how do we fit this into the phrasing, God just wants me to be happy? How do we take this and say, God just wants me to be happy? Because I'm pretty sure, I don't think it's hard for me to pull this apart, Moses would have been happy to live out his life in Midian as a shepherd married by himself. And God's like, nope, sorry. I know you objected like, Five times, but I'm still sending you. So, so like, why do we, where do we get this phrase from where we're okay with the idea that God just wants me to be happy? Where do we buy into this notion? The real truth is, we need to ask ourselves, does God actually want me to be happy? And the truth is, No. No. God wants so much more for you. God wants so much more for you than your circumstantial happiness. Happiness will come and it will go. It will fade and it will be here. But God wants more for you. God wants you to fulfill your purpose. And your purpose is to glorify and worship God. And when we fulfill our purpose of glorifying and worshiping God, that is when we experience true joy, which is everlasting. When we're pointed on God, we experience true joy. And that is not circumstantial. 
that does not fade and falter, that true joy lasts. The truth is when we worry about our circumstances and pursue a lifestyle that's just trying to make us happy, it is exhausting because your day is a roller coaster, literally a roller coaster of emotions and feelings and this happened. And I think if we're going to be honest, we really have to get to the root of what we're saying when we hear or say, God just wants me to be happy. What is the real truth that we're saying? And if I were to be so crass, and if we would define happiness as feeling or showing pleasure or contentment with our life circumstances, what we are saying to God is, God, I expect you to control my circumstances and serve me. God, you serve me not the other way around. God God wants me to be happy so I can justify doing this thing. Well, if you're justifying doing that thing, that means you're really concerned about this rather than this. I mean, God is not a genie in a bottle that grants us wishes or sits there going like, oh my gosh, like this little thing went wrong in John Seattle's life. Listen, you want to, we can go through my life and I can tell you right now, there's been a lot of points that if this statement is true, if God just wants me to be happy, I got a lot of bones to pick with God because there's a lot of moments I have not been happy, okay? And that's, that's the falsehood of the gospel being distorted. It's not about that. Matter of fact, your life will actually probably be really hard if you follow God, but it will be joyful. It will be fulfilled. And that's greater than the circumstantial happiness that is ever fleeting. Listen, don't get me wrong. I am the first one to raise my hand and say that this is something I can struggle with at different points throughout my life when I'm going through hardships. I am very quick to try to control my circumstances to make me happy. I have weaknesses. Shoes are a weakness for me. They are. I love my shoes. I do. I love them. Like, and my wife made fun of me the other day. She was like, how many pairs of black shoes are you going to have? And I said, they're all so beautiful. Maybe not those words, but the point being like that, that seeking happiness, we all know what we're talking about, right? That seeking materialistic things, seeking those little things, whatever that looks like. You know what makes me sad is when we start to justify things that directly contradict God's word by saying, if God wants me to be happy, then God wouldn't want me to continue to be in a marriage where I don't like the person I see across from me. What? You can't put God on that and then also read scripture and clearly see that God is not in favor of divorce. We can't in one breath go, if God wants me to be happy then my feelings or emotions should dictate my absolute truth. I feel like being something else or doing something else or being described as something else. That's not what God calls you to. Because feelings are fleeting and ever-changing, but God's word is consistent and true joy and fulfillment is felt through following God. That's the truth. That's what it boils down to. 
Now, I am a little nervous because some of you will swing this pendulum to the other direction and you're going to walk out the door and you're going to be like, well, my pastor today at church, he basically told me that God hates me and wants me to have a miserable life. No, but I would just simply say God is not a God who serves to fill our circumstantial either side of this equation because God wants more for you. He wants you to step forward to follow him. And in that, these things, they happen. Sometimes they're great. Sometimes they stink. But we are fulfilled with joy that is ever abounding and greater than any circumstance we can encounter. My mom used to use this phrase on me all the time. Maybe some parents in the room can relate to this one. John, the world does not revolve around you. How many parents have used that phrase before? Ah, great. How many people have heard that phrase used about that? Ah, a lot more. (laughs) The world does not revolve around you, and the truth is it, it doesn't. It's not all about me, even though sometimes that's what my life describes. I think that things are here to serve me, to please me, And where we skew this is when we start to see God as someone who is just here to fulfill my circumstances. You know what? The world does not revolve around John Ciotta. It revolves around God. And the real question is, which which way am I living? Am I living in a manner that says everything needs to please me and make me happy and fulfill my needs? Or am I living in a manner which is glorifying of God and I'm looking to God and I'm going, no, no, everything serves and worships and glorifies God. Because when you have a difference of perspective like that, it changes everything. Let me just describe a potential day that you may experience. You wake up, you spill your coffee. You wake up, you go to work, and somebody dinged your car in the parking lot. I don't know. You you go to work, and your boss is on your case again about something that you didn't mean to let go, but somebody else, whatever. I don't know. Circumstantial elements. That can totally derail the rest of your day, the rest of your week. You could feel like, oh my gosh, like, does God even care about me? Look at all these unpleasant circumstances that I'm experiencing. Or you can look at it like, no, no, no. I understand that through these, I have a chance to glorify God. And yeah, they are not fun. Nobody enjoys spilling coffee. But at the end of the day, like, there is something greater. Something greater than that. We have to change this phrase from God just wants me to be happy. We have to change this. And what I mean by changing it is, If I were to be presented with that or someone were to say that, my question to them and my question that I would really like for you to wrestle with today is not, does God really want you to be happy? And instead, asking you, do you really want what God wants? Do you really want what God wants? Because if you believe that God is here to serve your happiness, You do not have the same direction that God does because God wants more for you. He does. He wants you to live a fuller, more joyful, complete life. So my challenge for you guys today to wrestle through some of this topic is, do you want what God actually wants for you? 
Or do you really just want to be happy? Happiness is fleeting. Changes on a whim. Really challenging to control. Serving God, it's tough, but it's so fulfilling. So fulfilling. One of the things that I really wanted us to do before we kind of close out service and everything else was I, I really wanted to give us an opportunity. We, I know how this works. Like I, know, I know for me at least, like it's very easy to hear and then like we go, right? We leave and it's like, oh my gosh, I got this and this and this and so many other things going on. And so we're actually gonna take some time and we're gonna take two, two, two opportunities to fulfill our purpose in worshiping God. We're gonna take two opportunities to fulfill our purpose in worshiping God. So whether you're here in person or online, you can participate in these. We're going to be taking communion, and then we're actually going to have a time of reflection, okay? We're going to have a time of reflection. So first off with communion, communion is this sacred sacrament that I absolutely love where we get an opportunity to remember the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so when you came in today, you had an opportunity to pick up one of these and if you didn't get one, we have a couple ushers that are going to be coming down the aisles. And if you need one, just raise your hand. Yeah, absolutely. Just raise your hand. They'll hand one to you. Not a big deal at all. Um, we have these little communion cups. And guys, communion. Oh, I love communion. It is amazing. Because we get a chance to intentionally remember the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior. So we understand. We've sinned. We fall short of the glory of God. And so as a result, we need a Savior to come and to pay the ultimate price for us. And when we are born again believers, we have an opportunity to truly remember the work of God in our lives. Now, a couple quick notes about communion before we take it. Listen, if you're online or at home, I'd encourage you, Hop over to that fridge, grab some grape or orange juice, a small piece of bread, and, and we want to just remember that the body is bigger than just these four walls. We understand that the body exists continuously, and we have a chance to remember that together as the body, regardless of where we're at. And then I also want to just encourage you, if you're someone who's not a part of the body, meaning you are not a born-again believer, maybe you're first time here at Southridge, or you're figuring it out, I want to encourage you, listen, this is a great opportunity to witness because this partaking is an example. It is a statement. It is a remembering of what Christ has done, not only in the past, but what he has done in our personal lives. And so I want to encourage those, even if you're not a part of Southridge Community Church, let's just say you're here visiting us this morning, but you are a born-again believer. You know what? Take it with us. We are the church, and the church is bigger than Southridge Community Church. It extends to the surrounding areas and around the globe. And so we can partake in this together, recognizing that we are all the bride of Christ. So we flip and we read in Luke chapter 22. Jesus, he's at the Last Supper for Passover. He's there with his disciples. He instructs them. He says, go, go get everything ready. And they get it ready. And he sits down with them. And when he sits down with them, he has the bread and the cup. And he says, 
in verse 19. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. At this time, we as the body are going to remember the sacrifice of Christ and take the bread together. Let's do that now. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which I poured out for you. Let us take the cup together as the body of Christ, remembering the blood sacrifice of our Savior. Let's take the cup together at this time. I made this comment during first service. I love that sound. I love the crinkling of all the cups and the storing them away. I really do. It's an example of the body being together, doing something in communion together. And it's almost this nonverbal way of saying like, yeah, like we did this. Ah, it's, it's just beautiful. Now, before we head into our busy lives and we start worrying about lunch and what we're going to do and what, what, else, what else we need to get ready for for the week, one of the greatest things we think we can do is take time to reflect on God's truth. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to give you guys a minute, maybe two, to literally sit and ponder the questions about whether you're pursuing happiness or are you pursuing fulfillment in pursuing God. And then you know what? Um, worship team is going to lead us in, in one of my favorite things. It's the doxology, which talks about, you know, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise him. Praise him, God. Praise him. So we're going to sing that. We're going to sing it twice, just so everybody knows. We're going to sing it twice. And I want to encourage you, listen, worship however you want. This is about you and God. You want to stay seated? Stay seated. You want to stand up? You want to lift your hands? You want to put your hands in your pockets? I don't care. Sing out loud. Keep it to yourself, whatever. But we are going to, in communion together, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Let's take some time to reflect on God's worth and his truth.
Praise Him, all creatures here continues, let us continue to wrestle with the question, do I really want what God wants? Or do I really want to just be happy? Because that is a life-changing question on how we choose to live our lives. Thank you guys for praising the Lord, our Father, together as a body. I want to encourage you. Listen, if you want to receive some prayer, we have an incredible prayer team. They're going to be right up here. And regardless of where you're at or what your day looks like, I pray that your day continues to glorify and worship our Lord. Go and be blessed. Thank you guys for being here. Have a great rest of your day.